I'm David Woodstale, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Michelle Schneider, who's Director of Education and Research at Market Gauge. Michelle has had an amazing career, taking her from teacher to market trader, and now to Director of Education and Research and author. And I wanted to take the opportunity to get Michelle's take on the state of the markets and the volatility we're all experiencing her views and the trends set to impact the markets over the coming years, and also find out more about her new book, Plant Your Money Tree, A Guide to Growing Your Wealth. Well, hi, Michelle. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today for the podcast. I thought it might be useful if we perhaps kicked off the interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your career to date. Well, thank you, David, for having me here today. It's a pleasure and an honor. Um, So to begin, I guess the most succinct way to talk about a life well-lived is to say that I started out very much uh, wanting to be a teacher. Even when I was a small child, I would line my dolls up and I would stand in front of them and pretend to teach them something. What? I have no idea, but in my little child's mind, I was doing something good. And that basically stayed with me for my entire life. And then I went to uh, college, studied uh, special ed, got a master's in special ed and went into special ed uh, where I was really working at that point with a very tough population in New York City city. But fate has a certain crazy way of working out. And um, so I lived in Manhattan and a girl that lived in my building had come to my door one day and turned out she worked on the commodities exchange in New York and she was working for Merrill Lynch as a clerk. And she asked me if I wanted to go down and see the floor. And considering I was really not making very much money as a teacher back in those days, I thought, well, I don't really know anything else. I actually realized I had never been out of an institution. You know, went from uh, grade school to middle school to high school to college to graduate school. Now into a school, I was like, wow, maybe it's time to expand my horizon. And when I saw the floor and the action on the floor, uh, I I went nuts. I knew that was where I wanted to be. So uh, it wasn't an easy transition, but I did make a transition to become a clerk uh, initially as an analyst, really, basically for coffee, sugar, cocoa futures. And I was talking on a squawk box to brokers all over the world for Continental Grains Future Division, and then eventually got a seat for Conti Commodities in coffee, sugar, cocoa, where I remained until the uh, Hunt brothers decided to try to corner the silver market, putting that company out of business. And then I went off to other exchanges and became independent. So yeah, so really that's that's it in a nutshell. Obviously, years went by and trading on the floor became archaic. Electronic trading became the thing. And so we've been trading, quote unquote, upstairs uh, for many, many, many years. I mean, it's a fantastic story and certainly a very interesting one. And I think that certainly a lot of people who will be listening to this who, who are MBAs would be thinking to themselves, well, we're taking an MBA because we want to, to make a career change or a career switch. And I don't think that there is possibly any more dramatic career switches as moving from a teacher to a trader. And I was just wondering, <laughs> and I was just wondering if you have any sort of tips or insights in on how to successfully switch careers or sectors. And I know that yours is, you know, a, a, a very dramatic one, but it, it would be really useful if you could perhaps share some thoughts about you know how you acclimatize to that to that change of culture 
Well, you know, it was interesting. It was kind of what I called baptism by fire because I didn't know anything about business. It wasn't like a conversation we would have around the dinner table about our stock portfolio. My dad was a postal worker and we grew up very low middle class New York City. So, yeah, it was it was definitely quite a change in terms of my advice for others. Well, we have a little bit of a background change, <laughs> a little bit being an understatement with COVID. So making a career change change now would look very different than it did, you know, really up until this year, sure. because you're not going into offices. So I would say at this point, and this is basically, uh, we'll get, I know we're going to talk about my book, but it really is covered in the book, is you want to be able to look at what type of phase any particular industry company sector of the economy is in and that would be very much an influence to be able to decide whether or not you're entering something that is about to go the way of the dinosaur or something that's really going to evolve um, into the future as technology has become supreme staying at home becomes supreme and the way we travel the way we entertain the way we do everything obviously is going to change and it is changing so that's a very long-winded answer, but if you are going for an MBA, one thing I will say is I did not have any formal education in terms of college education in business. As you heard, I have a master's in special ed. So if you are going to get an MBA, do not expect to learn about investing. Uh, in that curriculum. So it depends on what you want to do with your MBA. Obviously, if I were getting a business degree now, I would want to try to figure out what companies are emerging into this new world. Um, but if your goal is to become an investor, trader, speculator, um, you definitely have to get an education outside of the college curriculum. Absolutely. And then you mentioned that, you know, you've, you've you spent several years working across several New York commodity exchanges. And I, I mean, you have the accolade of being one of the only female members for, for, for 13 years in that sort of industry in the World Trade Center. I'd be so interested to find out from you some insight into what it's actually like to, to be a trader in that environment. And I think, you know, we, we see a lot of this nowadays in, in film and, and media and, and sort of fantasized versions of what investment banking was like. But I'd be really interested to find out your perspective on that. Well, you know, it was kind of a fantasy world in a sense. <laughs> um, well, number one, I had the advantage of being young. And when you're young, you have a certain sense of infallibility. So I never really stopped to think that, hey, I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> number one, when I got started, or B, that, you know, I'm a woman and everybody else down here is a guy. Um, I really just thought of it as this was something I wanted to do. I, I understood it implicitly that I would now have my finger on the pulse of the entire world. Um, and so it was an incredible time, not only just in the commodities markets, because I got started uh, right when inflation was starting to get out of control. So I got to see these tremendous moves up in a lot of the commodities. But it was also the 80s where I spent the bulk of my career which we know was a wild decade anyway. So, you know, it was like sex, drugs, rock and roll, and then take that exponentially on the commodities exchange where people were making a lot of money. So could afford to take that to a degree that was, as you say, portrayed in so many films, maybe not quite Wolf of Wall Street, but not so far behind that. 
I suppose moving forward now, um, you, you now work as director of education and research at Market Gauge, and and you're really focused, I suppose, on making investing more accessible and more human. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that's that, that's actually a really place to the zeitgeist of the current market and thinking about things in in very human ways. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about your work, what your work involves now? Well, notice in the title, you, you the word education popped up. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's funny because one of the things that my parents used to say to me when I was growing up is become a teacher because you always have something to fall back on, <laughs> um, which was very much their mindset. You know, always have a bottom line, which, by the way, has been something very valuable for trading. It's always good to have what you're going to fall back on, where you're wrong, you know, where you can go back to certain set of rules. So in terms of what I'm doing and have been doing now for really basically since 2009 is I have taken it upon myself uh, with our company, Market Gauge, to educate people from the complete novice who's never done it before, never made an investment before, or has a 401 and has absolutely no idea what any of it means and basically stuffs it in a drawer every quarter, never looks at it, to people who have experience to hedge fund operators. I have people from pretty much across the spectrum because everybody needs an education when it comes to this sort of thing. You know, the biggest boom this year has been the Robin Hood traders. And I, I, I think it's great on one level because back in the day in the commodities exchange, when a commodity got hot, you saw people coming into the pit to buy and buy that price up and added liquidity. The problem is that these Rob, same Robin Hood traders, and maybe in the last couple of days as the market has tanked, have gotten very hurt. Why? Because they don't have a set of rules. So on the floor, as a female especially, I really needed a set of rules because there was no way I was going to go into the pit when things were going insane and compete physically. And uh, and interestingly enough, my husband, uh, Keith Schneider, was also on the floor. And even though he was a guy with a much louder voice, he just inherently knew that you needed a set of rules. And that's where all the technology that Market Gauge has really started was with Keith. And so we all sort of had this idea that in order for us to become teachers and become better traders ourselves, we needed this structure. And that unfortunately is what a lot of people get sucked into is following somebody who's hot, but has absolutely no real set of standard rules that you could follow that are teachable, repeatable, et cetera. And that's when they get into trouble. So that's my job is to make sure people know what they're doing, not get into trouble, lead by by actual example. I give them trades to follow. Sometimes we lose, which is the best education, of course, because you have to learn how to lose. And luckily, much more, we we make money in, in the in the long run. So there you go. And I guess on that note, you've authored a book and we touched about upon this a little bit earlier, but I'd love to find out a little bit more. So your book is called Plant Your Money Tree, A Guide to Growing Your Wealth. Um, now, I used to work in publishing and I know how much of a, an investment and, and, and a piece of work it is to put together a book. So I'd be really keen to find out from you the, the story behind that, why you decided to write a book and really what it's about and what the reader can expect to, to see if they if they were to read it. Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one is just my own personal resume, if you will. I've been a teacher. 
um, and a trader. And uh, in that teaching, of course, was special education. Uh, and also, I've always been a writer. I wrote stories when I was younger. When I was in education, as I started to go into consulting, I was writing constantly. And since I've been in the market gauge business, I write daily blogs, I've written articles, etc. So I thought, you know, I have three really great skills. If I could put that together, what does the marketplace need? And that's where Plant Your Money Tree came to uh, into my head. Number one is there are many, many wealth books, but a lot of those wealth books are somewhat condescending because they essentially tell you to passively buy and hold. They tell you to diversify your assets and they tell you to save your money, which um, most people uh you know, they, first of all, don't save their money. The buy and hold has not necessarily always been a good formula in history. And we're going to about to find out in the market very soon if that's true. And thirdly, uh, diversify your assets is, is something that is speaking in a foreign tongue to most people. Or you have these technical books. And technical books could be quite intimidating because they are also written in a very complicated language that most people couldn't possibly get through or understand or employ even if they could. So I wanted to hit the sweet spot in the middle. So basically what I did is I created a book that's like a compass, like a navigation system using these six market phases. And everybody knows about bullish and everybody knows about bearish. But I also talk about what's in the middle of these middle phases, which is really the best opportunities either to get yourself out of the market when things are turning or get into the market when things are turning. And from there, I tell you how to identify the phase, what it means, not just for investing, but career changes um, with majors in college where you might send your kids off to if we're still allowed to do that, sending kids off to college, um, you know. Is it a good time to buy real estate, borrow money? What are interest rates doing? What's the dollar doing? Just basically a way for people to look at this compass and say, ah, based on what's going on right now, these are the decisions I should make about my life or could make. And even if they make no decisions, at least to have some level of information that's actionable. And that was the key, the word actionable. As a trader, you want everything to be actionable. I hate opinions. They don't do anything. What I want is actionable information. What do I do if X, Y, Z happens based on a formula? I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. And I think it's it's very timely to have a, a publication that actually sort of talks to people in real terms that they can understand without being patronizing, without being condescending, but actually telling them what they need to do. And I think it's really important. And I think it, it, it's so key to make something like this accessible um, and relevant. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see how how, how this goes and develops and, and you can create a movement from your book. So I'll be, I'll be really keen to watch that with interest. Now, I'm going to use a tenuous link now um, on investments and connecting it to MBAs um, because I think a lot of people who take an MBA, um, it, it, it's obviously an undertaking of time, of, of, of money to, to, to complete the course, and they might look at that as an investment in their future. So I was wondering if you have any advice for our listeners about how they can perhaps use education as an investment, how they can make the most from that and take it forward throughout their careers and lives. Well, I think, first of all, you have to decide what, what, where in your MBA you're going. And, and we talked about that in the very beginning. You can help 
that decision making really basically by understanding what particular phase. Like, for example, um, if you want to uh, get an MBA and start a business in oil and gas, that may not be the best idea because that has been an industry that has been dying on the vine. If you want to get an MBA and start a business that's more clean energy, well, then you would see that that's been uh, something that's been trending. So I say in terms of the education, there's a couple of things that I learned from my own education. Believe it or not, one of it is just good study skills and good habits. Um, How are you as a student? Because that is going to be a great metaphor for how you might be as a trader if that's where you want to go. Uh, Number two is in that organization, as you are as a student, you also want to make sure that you have a set of rules for yourself. Again, that's where an MBA can be extremely valuable, even if the curriculum doesn't cover per se trading and investing. So, you know, the, the I hope education doesn't become less important because of this new Robin Hood trading movement, people who took their stimulus checks and decided to invest it in the stock market. I'm really hoping that people continue to see the value of education, considering I have I am highly educated and constantly now self-educate pretty much every day. Um, I think it's a great thing for, for people to do if that's what they want. Um, but again, you know, you really want to make sure, though, that you supplement that MBA, depending on where you specialize in with one, making sure you're going into something that's actually a mega trend that is emerging as opposed to one that's very late in the stage. And B, to be able to take that education and apply it to an education in the markets. I mean, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Something that that we really talk a lot about in in our work is lifelong learning. And you you know that that, that people should always be be looking for new ways to learn. And and like you say, learning every day. So that absolutely resonates with us. And I think that's really important. So I'm coming to the end of the interview. It's the last question. I always like to end our interviews for our podcast with talking about the future and optimism. Um, We've talked a little bit about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and how we are living in absolutely unprecedented times. And I think that was a trend that was emerging throughout the whole VUCA era, that that things are just uncertain and and ambiguous and volatile. And then COVID-19 came along. Now, we we talked about your book and and how it offers a roadmap to the market. But we we did also talk a little bit about how, you know, the climate could have an impact in this. And I was really wondering if if you think the advice is is going to have to change in future years. and, And really, if you feel optimistic about the future of business, perhaps for next year or the year after. Well, we do have this other little X factor happening in the United States, in case you haven't heard, a presidential election coming up. So exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Exciting is one word for it. I'm excited. (laughs) You're excited. Okay, good. Well, you're you're in London, so you can be excited. (laughs) Yeah, we can can watch from afar. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) As for the rest of us Yanks here, um, there's there's some anxiety uh, around that and, you know, justifiably so, considering that uh, what the result of this election could really uh, have an impact on what's happening already, not just here in the United States, but all over the world, which is this social unrest. Um, So I think that we have the COVID situation on one hand that obviously is going to forever change things. And I think what will happen is we evolve as a society and we're actually almost looking at human evolution kind of on a daily basis here with this COVID because 
back in a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu, things changed, but we're at a much different level technology wise. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be very exciting to see young companies that emerge that are creating software to make everything easier or architecturally designs that have to change for flying or going to the movies or going to a restaurant, et cetera. And I think some of that will go back to a level of normalcy. Uh, at the same time, I think we've maybe forever changed, obviously work at home for those people who can do that probably not going away anytime soon in terms of how people are buying houses. They're not looking to get into crowded cities. People are starting, at least in the United States, to go into some of the suburbs and some of the areas. Santa Fe, perfect example. My God, we've had a real boom here in housing. So getting back to the pandemic, yes, I'm actually thinking optimistically about that. As I said, an evolution And you kind of see that in science fiction. We are so much more, when you look at science fiction movies, human beings are more socially distanced. Everything is done through technology. You know, then, of course, you have the science fiction nightmare of the machines taking over the humans. And, you know, obviously that's (laughs) the, the fictional part that may or may not come back to bite us one day. But on the other hand, now, right now, we have something else also really, as I mentioned before, we have to keep in mind. And that is this social unrest, because we're coming out of a major, major trend of complacency all over the world for the last 20 or 30 years, really basically since the 60s, 70s. People have become very complacent, and we can get into that discussion another time. Why? And after complacency comes sort of a revolutionary state. And so I think the biggest caution we have right now is this is kind of a revolutionary period that we're in, and it hasn't even reached an apex yet. Optimistically, so I don't make anybody depressed, after we have a major period of revolution, this is where uh, innovation comes into play. And so I think we will evolve into a more innovative society based on all of the stuff that is happening here. But we're, I think we're looking at a little bit of a rocky time ahead. And again, depending on the election results, whether or not that ends in January, February 2021, or continues into 2021 until there's another sea change. Yeah, I mean, I think that, it, you know, we're, we're having similar similar sort of um, uncertainty, in, certainly in the UK and Europe, with, with our own sort of Brexit issues and stuff that, that's unfolding, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, at the same time as, as, the, as the pandemic is unfolding. So I think, you know, there's uncertainty everywhere. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right. It is rocky, but this does give us an opportunity for, for innovation and cream always rises to the top. So I think there's a lot to feel optimistic about. As well. well and exactly. And Brexit, by the way, is another perfect example of questioning the status quo. Whether it's right or wrong is irrelevant. Whatever side anybody's on in terms of their angst and their anger is irrelevant. What is relevant is that, yes, the ruffle, the feathers have been ruffled and people are starting to say, I don't want the status quo anymore. And so where where does that go? Uh, Luckily, in the UK, you don't have the problem that we have here. Unfortunately, people are armed to the teeth here in the United States. Um, And that concerns me, of course. We're already seeing violence coming out of some of these protests. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping in in the rest of the world, uh, the, the, the protests stay a lot more peaceful. But you're right. Out of this 
good change, good things to come. And the younger generation, the Gen Z generation, um, I'm very, very excited about because I've met quite a number of people uh, doing many different things in that generation. And I think that they may have actually learned from the mistakes of all the generations before them up to baby boomers. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah, me too. No, I completely agree. I think there's, there's a lot to feel optimistic about. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I absolutely love talking to you. Um, so interesting and so many great insights coming across today that, that I think that will give people a lot to think about when they listen to this. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. Well, thank you, David. I really enjoyed talking with you and um, I look forward to perhaps talking again in the future. And if you'd like to find out more about Michelle's book or indeed buy it, you can get it via www.marketgage.com where you can also get a complimentary 45-minute video from Michelle talking through some of the key themes and offering additional information. We also have a wealth of information about the current trends and issues affecting our business world and also the wider society on the Ambition website. And you can view them there at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition. Thanks to Michelle and David for that fantastic interview. I'm really looking forward to reading Michelle's book. I'm Ellen Buchan, Communications and Insights Assistant at AMBA. Next up on the podcast, I'll be speaking to David Sagawa, one of the judges for our MBA Leadership Award. We spoke about what makes a great leader and what he'll be looking for in the winning entry. We also spoke about his career, his new role at Living Goods, his role at Oxfam, the African Development Bank, Unilever and Coca-Cola, just to name a few. Here's that interview. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career to date, please? Yes, my, my name is David Segawa. I am a Ugandan by nationality. Um, I'm a human capital uh, leader by profession and I've actually spent over the last 20 years at some of the leading global organizations uh, leading human capital functions but also uh, playing roles at country, at continental and even global levels. And I've been privileged to also operate uh, in different HR skill areas, uh, including uh, strategy, including total rewards, learning and development, employment relations, and several others. That's great. So you recently took out the position of Global Chief for People and Culture at Living Goods. Can you explain a little bit more about what Living Goods does? Living Goods is a global not-for-profit organization that aims at saving lives and providing universal access to quality uh, community health care, currently operating mainly in Africa. Uh, What it does is to partner with governments and works closely with other global multinational uh, partners to really provide superior impact through digitally delivered solutions. And at the moment, um, there is a lot happening in countries like Kenya and Uganda. And there's a lot of uh, the various services and technical partnerships that it provides, again, across Africa. Can you give us an example of the digital solutions that you're talking about? Yes, uh, as you may know, um, 
in many parts of Africa, uh, the high incidences of malaria, for example, uh, equally, uh, there will always be challenges with pregnancies, um, especially for young mothers, but equally there are a lot of other potential ailments or uh, health challenges for our communities in Africa. And so uh, the living goods community health workers uh, would uh, not only have quick access to as many as the population in Africa to know what the challenges are, but at times to provide uh, first aid if you want, and you are able to either refer them to hospitals or uh, able to administer drugs as necessary based on the protocols uh, guided by the ministries of health in these countries. Sounds like amazing work. You've worked in people management and HR positions at some of the world's um, most recognisable companies, such as Oxfam, the African Development Bank, Unilever and Coca-Cola. Is it difficult to achieve the impact when working for such large multinational companies? Actually, uh, it is a real pleasure working for the big multinationals uh, to deliver solutions and uh, as well, you know, um, have impact on the different businesses. So there are two good reasons why. Um, First of all, you're able to leverage uh, global best practices and you then, without having to reinvent wheels, are able to customize some of those into locally relevant solutions. That's one. But at the same time, there is a lot of opportunity to innovate locally and take those great initiatives and solutions uh, to a global scale thereby delivering superior impact. But equally, by building global networks of, uh, you know, community or practice uh, colleagues, you are therefore then able to co-create huge uh, innovative ideas that could actually change the business. So a real, real opportunity to have your map to have impact on a global scale as a result of playing into these organizations. So what would you say was your most successful initiative to date? Well, um, one of them is uh, the opportunity I've had to build really diverse uh, talent pools uh, in Coca-Cola, Unilever, but actually almost all the organizations I've worked in. Uh, I've been very keen uh, to enable women uh, to acquire uh, skills and competences that can, can propel them to the topmost positions in the organizations I work for. And I've seen the power of the collective genius coming through um, those really inclusive and diverse workforces, including um, uh, the ability to uh, generate um, a lot of ideas, uh, business ideas from generations Y and Z, uh, but equally, you know, the more uh, diversity I've seen coming through those talent pools, the more I've seen um, our businesses thrive. So I've been very keen and uh, deliberate about building talent pools in Africa uh, with these multinational organizations uh, to realize uh, the businesses full potential through diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you've led some global transformations within these companies. 
What do you think makes transformation successful, especially when managing large numbers of people? Hmm. Well, top on the list for me is the role of leadership, because it really has to start with um, creating a, a shared purpose uh, and making sure that there is clarity of direction of travel. Very importantly, is for leadership to be able to demonstrate uh, why it is risky not to make any changes, but even more importantly, to demonstrate you know, the benefit of transforming the organization. And I've seen uh, great successful transformation take place simply because there have been adequate consultative moments at which all the employees, but as well all the internal and external stakeholders, are being brought along the journey to really appreciate that they co-own the destiny of the organization, that each one has a role to play, but as well to understand that change is inevitable and for the better if managed carefully. And that comes down to the role of leadership. Ultimately, it is also about uh, being able to make decisions, at times tough ones, but very importantly, to make sure that they are positioned as a win-win for as many stakeholders as possible. And you've done an MBA, and I was wondering um, if you tell me how it's impacted your career so far. I must say that's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in life. Uh, the MBA has enabled me, first of all, to approach different situations um, with a very open mind. Um, I've been able to interrogate different situations through different lenses. I've been able to challenge status quo, uh, biases, as well as a lot of assumptions in business and in society. And so I feel I'm able to make smarter decisions. It is easier for me than ever before to translate strategy into action. Uh, but equally, um, I'm more comfortable dealing with situations of uncertainty, ambiguity, and uh, if you want, um, complexity. And so, now, I mean, th there's a lot of value in this MBA, and uh, I'm, I'm definitely a better business leader than ever before. Um, so you're actually one of the judges for our MBA Leadership Award. What do you think makes a great leader? Us, that leader should be visionary, should be able to inspire teams to do the almost impossible, energizing them and coaching them. But equally, that leader should be able to create an environment where the multiple stakeholders' expectations are met. And um, who would you say was your biggest role model as a leader? Well, Nelson Mandela, who was uh, president of South Africa, has always been a key role model for me, likely because of his uh, approach to diversity and inclusion in decisions that are made uh, in the interest of organizations, in the interest of nations. But his humble approach to resolving conflict has always been very important for me. It's definitely one of the key leadership traits uh, that one would like to develop and uh, leverage as they continue to grow. What will you be looking for in the winning entry for the awards? I'll be looking for those individuals who have created um, uh, really 
significant impact uh, in the businesses, in their countries, or even communities where they operate. Uh, and, and, and I'll be seeking to see how they've demonstrated innovation and used very ethical approaches to doing business and to the extent that they are inspirational and they've been able to bring uh, teams, groups, and communities along the way. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and I'm looking forward to working with you um, in the Leadership Award. Thank you, Ellen, and looking forward to the awards. Thank you so much to David and Michelle for being on the podcast today. If you'd like more thought leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out for the next Ambition podcast.